Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Daron. And I'm Nicole. And today we're talking exercise and brain function with Dr. Haroon Malik. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 81. Today, we are joined with Dr. Haroon Malik, who's a clinical neuropsychologist working with a wide range of diagnostic concerns such as ADHD, memory disorders, neurocognitive disorders, and various different mood and emotional disorders. Haroon has focused his postgraduate research on the effects of exercise on brain function. And today we're going to talk about this topic. I think this is going to be a good one for you guys. So Haroon, thanks for having me, guys. Really looking forward to this podcast. Haroon, what's going on? Same old happy Friday. (laughs) Happy Friday. So happy Friday. Well, technically for our audience, this is Monday, Monday, but (laughs) oh, happy Friday. So Haroon, I wanted to team up with you to do this episode. I want to talk a little bit about what you do and what you're currently doing in the field. And then I also want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the research that you've done in the area of exercise and brain function, and then we'll get into some of the specifics. But first, let's get into where you're at currently, what you're practicing, what you do on kind of like what your day-to-day looks like. Yeah. So um, I'm a practicing uh, licensed clinical psychologist. Uh, I specialize in neuropsychology, which really is a fancy word for sort of um, really assessing brain behavior relationships, really uh, looking at things uh, across the lifespan, usually across the adult lifespan. So I look at things like uh, whether or not there's an underlying ADHD going on, whether there's an autism spectrum going on, a learning disability, uh, or all of the above psychiatric uh, issues that often co-occur with a lot of those issues. And then kind of moving on into adulthood, things like, you know, traumatic brain injury, uh, neurocognitive types of disorders, like dementia, different types of dementia, like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease. Uh, really the goal is getting an answer to those referral questions. And so I do these evaluations. I work at a private practice here in uh, Newton, Massachusetts, it's Newton neuropsychology group. Um, and so this is where I, I do these evaluations typically comprised of an intake and also, you know, formal evidence-based statistically validated, um, neuropsychological and psychological assessment measures. Cool. And now, Haroon, you uh, you kind of specialized in your postgrad work on the effects of exercise, particularly cardio, right, on uh, yeah. brain function. So, talk to us a little bit about some of the research you've done in this area. Yeah, so my uh, dissertation project was actually honed in on just what you said, Daron. It's uh, I looked at how acute bouts of uh, moderately intense aerobic exercise, uh, how those affect one's uh, attentional processes, particularly within the young adult population. Uh, so I, I looked at uh, the age group between 18 and 24, uh, because that's predominantly also that was the age range that I personally found attentional <laughs> issues the most uh, bothersome, also because of college and, you know, just uh, graduate school, all that. Um, and then I also uh, I wanted to kind of see how that looked within the context of this group, because, you know, you're, you're getting older. This is when sedentary lifestyles begin oftentimes. Uh, in that sort of young adulthood age. And then conversely, it's also when people start to really know if there's sort of this exercise identity in them and studies show that if they start then 
they will likely at some point potentially pick back up, even if they take a, a break or a halt from it. So it was really a really interesting area um, population that I was interested in. Let me ask you from an age standpoint, now that I'm thinking about it, is there a difference in terms of results across ages? And like, and I know that I've seen, you know, I've heard, I guess when I was younger, I've, I've heard that, well, brain plasticity changes with age. And then I've heard that it doesn't change with age. So like, where, how does that kind of fit in, in terms of picking age range? Yeah. So that's a great question. I mean, when we look at plasticity in general, uh, there's a couple things you want to look at. So one of which is, uh, neural plasticity is probably the most, uh, most appropriately used or, you know, indication of plasticity over the years. So that's essentially, we have these neurons that are in our brain. Um, our neurons are essentially the messengers for various signals that we need, whether it's related to hunger, uh, thirst, whether it's related to sleep, you name it, everything. Uh, it travels all throughout our, our body, especially in our brain as well, of course, um, through our spinal cord, really reflexes are also very, are impacted by our, our result of neurons. Um, and so when we look at that across the lifespan and we essentially neurogenesis is the, the, the sort of a creation of neurons over time. And so what a lot of literature finds is that typically increases and it can, continues to increase, but as we get older, sort of going into the middle to older adulthood, there's patterns of neurogenesis that change. So it's, uh, typically it's, it's neurogenesis is reduced uh, to some degree. And even in other cases, uh, when it comes to things like, you know, Alzheimer's disease and dementia, those are areas where often neurogenesis is even furthermore um, at a more precipitous rate. The, 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 it's, the, the cell death is higher. Apoptosis is what they call it. And so that's an area that, that's typically studied. And interestingly so, given this topic, exercise has been shown to really promote and facilitate neurogenesis across the lifespan uh, and different, it's hard to really quantify it. Cause you know, when we're our executive functioning, that's a big area of brain functioning, really a uh, higher order functioning, like planning organization, what we all as humans think like multitasking, you know, trying to do two things at once or just being efficient with tasks. That's what, um, executive functioning is. And so what we know is executive functioning at about age 30, it doesn't, it doesn't even like uh, hit its peak until about age 30. Uh, so, you know, comparing that someone that's age 15 versus someone that's, you know, age 65 and looking at their executive functioning abilities, it's going to, you know, vary because of where they're at, you know, depending on what neurogenesis looks like at that time frame. But now we can look at like cohorts of people and say, you know, that this number, I'm sure we've got the info out there with this number of people that are physically active throughout the lifespan versus the people who aren't, who live a sedentary lifestyle. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm guessing you could just do that with like simple, like surveys on people and then look at executive function and then see the differences between the two. Right. Yes, absolutely. And usually when, when these studies are done and there's, a, there's an extensive amount of literature really about, about this topic um, and executive functioning and how exercise really impacts that aerobic, anaerobic, those kinds of things. And so, yes, uh, to, to a point, you know, you can look at these executive functioning dimensions uh, through a lot of like the work that I do, you know, I, I, I do these assessments and these evaluations are uh, paper and pencil, usually paper and pencil, some computerized uh, measures that are given to patients. They complete those measures. Th these measures are all, you know, scientifically validated uh, through sort of rigorous uh, different types of reliability and also validity studies. So these patients take these tests, they get a raw score out of these tests, and then we have to make them meaningful. And to make them meaningful, we compare them to other people that have similar demographic characteristics. Usually age is the biggest factor. 
Um, that creates a standardized score. That standardized score is what gives us a percentile of where they rank compared to that age group. So, you know, one example is, uh, so let's say someone on a test of executive functioning, right? Let's say it's a test of uh, what we call like set switching, multitasking. Let's say someone gets a, a score of, uh, you know, 18 out of 20 on that. And so that raw score, 18 out of 20, that is compared to the raw scores that people of that age group also obtained through like, you know, comparison, mean standard deviation, so to speak. Uh, and then that score itself is a standardized percentile score. So the percentile is 85th percentile. That means that person compared to that population performed better than 85% of those people. If that sort of, that's how you kind of see where someone ranks in that regard. And that's how we really determine what weaknesses are in particular areas. Yeah. And you do that kind of statistical analysis to figure out where they, yes. where they fall with their age group. Yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit about, I, I guess I want to go into the results of the research that you did specifically. Yeah. And then I also want to get into some other testing that is done around brain function and exercise. Yeah. So I, uh, I looked at the population of the 18 to 24 year olds. Um, I really, there's a test that's called a continuous performance test that I administered prior to the experimental uh, treatment group with either exercise or the control non-exercise groups. So in terms of what exercise groups did I use? So I wanted to look at, all right, if I do five minutes of cardio, how's that going to be different than me doing 15 or 20 minutes cardio? Is it like, you know, maybe I can get the bang for my buck here. Is there something that's better if I can just get a good attentional benefit from doing a small amount versus a more a higher amount from that in that standpoint? So I looked at uh, three different groups. I looked at zero people that did exercise, moderately intense aerobic exercise uh, from one to 15 minutes. That was one group. And then I did 16 to 30. That was another group. And then 31 to 45 was the third group. I felt bad for anyone that was in the third group. I told them it's not personal. It was all randomly assigned. But um, but essentially, I looked at those. They, they completed that sort of uh, that regimen and... After that, I had them complete the same attentional test again that I gave them previously, the continuous performance test. And I looked at the change in scores. Uh, how, how we're, and there's multiple metrics on this test, which is why I chose it. Uh, had minimal practice effects through research. So I looked at that and how it changed across these groups. So all the groups did better than the control group. So that suggests that aerobic exercise of a moderate intensity at any amount is actually beneficial. Uh, when it comes to attention. And then I wanted to look at closer sort of a analysis across the three exercise groups. And what I actually found was the, uh, the 16 to 30 minute was uh, the most optimal and actually yielded significant uh, between group differences compared to the one through 15 and the 31 through 45 uh, minute group. So this meet this sort of a area, this, this, amount of a, it suggests that there's some level of a, maybe a dose response relationship that needs to be further examined. You know, I didn't have too many, you know, uh, actual participant. Like I had a total of, uh, I want to say it was about a 40, 40 to 40 to 60 total participants, if I recall correctly. And, uh, I, I wish I could have increased that size a little bit more because it would have made the, the probably got given a little more data about some of that, about the differences between the groups. But essentially, it did really show this, this remarkable difference. And it was really well supported by the literature that I was reading into, particularly about the effects of aerobic exercise, the mechanisms, the, the specific uh, you know, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which I'm sure we'll get into, and how that kind of plays a part in a lot of this sort of exercise, cognition, attention paradigm. So Haroon, talk to me about 
and you and I kind of talked offline about the different areas that you're looking at, right? So you talk, you mentioned executive function. Yeah. You also mentioned attention. Yep. What else are we looking at when we're looking at brain function as it pertains to exercise enhancing it? Yeah. So this is where, uh, you know, when we look at those two, the, the extra, the attention and the executive functioning have really been the biggest, uh, most studied areas when it comes to this sort of exercise and, um, attend, you know, cognitive functioning paradigm, other things. So, so memory, for example, right. That's another thing that is such a, there's been studies for it. And usually, uh, memory kind of, I, I like to kind of give a little, uh, a, a sort of analogy when it comes to memory and what, how it works. I feel like sometimes we use memory as a one size fits all, but it is, it's involved three different sort of uh, functions. So, you know, think of like a file, you take a file to a file cabinet. Uh, that's step one of memory, which is sort of encoding that's encoding the information. Step two is putting that information inside of the file cabinet. Uh, that's, that's storing it. It's a storage of information. And then step three is pulling the stuff out when you need it you know, we're pulling that file out. And often that's contingent on how organized that information was learned and encoded. So there's multiple different areas. When it comes to exercise, what's been attempted has been looking at the encoding and the retrieval functions. Because oftentimes as we, the better you learn information, the better you're, you're, you're going to recall it and retrieve it. And so the problem is with a lot of these, uh, these studies, Daron and Nicole, is that they, if you think about it, when you do a memory test, right? And you do it twice. A lot of these studies use the same pre and post design that I used. When you're doing it multiple times, even if you're using alternate versions in such a brief time frame, you're actually increasing a lot of a practice effects that act as confounds for the for the research. So the data does show that there is a benefit for exercise in terms of performance in these areas of encoding. You know, word list encoding, uh, story memory, a story encoding, or visual encoding. The problem is, is that how much is that practice effect really impacting that boost of performance? Personally, anecdotally, I think it absolutely helps your learning and your retention of information. But where the, the studies kind of are shy in that regard is how much of that practice effect is really impacting things. So memory is definitely one piece of, of, of a component of it. When we look at executive functioning, as you know, you mentioned other things aside from attention and executive functioning, I do want to make a point that sort of executive functioning is a very big umbrella term and it involves so many different uh, functionings. Like this is like things like, as I said, like planning, organizing information, um, self monitoring, behavioral mo monitoring, uh, emotional regulation is also part of it. Um, you know, set switching, uh, there's a whole impulsivity. So it's, it's, there are so many different functions. So when someone says, this modality, this intervention improves executive functioning. It's really hard because a lot of these studies have limitations. It's like, all right, this is the test that I use that measures this one subset of executive functioning. You know, it benefits that, but does it benefit the whole? That's where it kind of gets a little uh, challenging because executive function just encompasses so much. Other aspects of things, the, the uh, visual spatial functioning as well as something. Working memory is, is also a big piece. It often is tied into, uh, into executive functioning. Working memory, kind of a, to put it in real, real world terms, is if, I, if you were trying to go to grocery, if you're going to go grocery shopping, right? I know you, uh, you love Whole Foods, Drone. I know you love it. If you're going grocery shopping and you're not using a list and you're trying to rely on your brain, how effective is that usually for you? <laughs> I can tell you right yeah, now right? that uh, I can, I can make a list. I talk to yeah. my, my clients about this all the time. I make the list. I write it all down. I take the list with me into the grocery store 
And then I test myself at the end of my grocery run and go over. And then I'll take out the list at the very end and see how much I actually did not remember yep. to see what I missed. And I know this sounds really silly, but there when I'm it's I want to talk about stress, too, is kind of something mm -hmm. I want yeah. to tap into when you talked about the 30 minute marker, how much stress too much exercise versus mm -hmm. not enough exercise can kind of tip because there are days where if I am exercising and feeling really balanced, uh, I, I don't miss a lot of things on the list. But if that stress cup kind of tips over, whether I exercise or not, it, it can really it doesn't really make a difference. I actually forget more because I have so much load on my mind. So yeah. stuff. Well, that let I me was let me just chime chime in here. And, and, and I will say to answer your question, Haroon, I do forget stuff and then take like three or four trips, three or four trips a week to the grocery. We store. all do. We all do. Yeah. Right. But uh, to Nicole, to your point, and this is the question that I would have is based on Haroon's study, is it is it stress or is it fatigue? Right. So is yeah. the are the yeah. results kind of altered because that was just too much and that fatigued the individual? And then mm -hmm. uh, you were testing, you said um, attention. Right. So, yeah. When we're looking at it, does attention just decrease? Is it based on stress or is it based on fatigue? I think those are two different things, right? Right. Yeah. So, so, I mean, when we're talking about like, you know, one could argue like fatigue itself could be uh, you know, a sign of physical stress for sure. Uh, you know, one thing I will say with what you mentioned, Nicole, you're, you're absolutely spot on stress is like working is working memory and just cognitive functionings. Like worst nightmare in the moment when you're stressed, your, your, your brain is essentially in fight or flight mode. It's like, I got to do this one thing. That's my focus. No ifs, ands, or buts. I don't care about anything else. Uh, so that stress standpoint, very, that's very true. And a lot, my, you know, a lot of research has shown that that sort of relationship between stress and cognition and working memory and just memory itself. Um, and so going to your pointer on what you mentioned with uh, the timeframes, right? Having, having the longer time frame and how that in my study, it didn't, it didn't show a benefit uh, as did that middle amount, that 16 to 30 bout, you know, looking at why that, that happened, I think it, it could be helpful to look at some studies that look at a heart, like the different intensity of uh, exercise. I mean, you know, there's some really remarkable studies. When I was doing my literature review, I actually, quite honestly, I wanted to look at the initially the moderate intensity versus the more rigorous intensity types of work, the, the, the exercise, like uh, looking at heart rate monitoring and checking the, that, that as, a, as a sort of a measure of that. Um, because a lot of research has already shown that more in the moment, sort of more sort of intense aerobic exercise. So when you're really creeping into that sort of a what's often considered the 71 to 90% uh, zone of your, your total max heart rate, you know, as, as a, just a crude measure, that's when you actually see sort of a worse cognitive functioning actually compared to even lighter intensity types of workouts. So I'm bringing that up because the way I tried to monitor a lot of my participants was I tracked their heart rate over time. And, you know, this is often, as I'm sure you guys know, in, in the work that you do, it's often contingent on someone's, you know, history with physical activity, right? So if they're more active at baseline, their, their sort of heart rate is going to likely be at a lower level compared to someone that's doing the same amount of exercise uh, that has much less and has a more sedentary type of lifestyle. So I, I wonder that, that that's definitely a, a potential consideration is if, if the longer exercise that you have, the more likely you are to make it into that zone. This is sort of a, a theory I have, uh, make it into that zone of a more sort of, you know, 
physically a stress type of standpoint, thus resulting in you not performing as well on these attentional measures as you would with a light, a, a less more moderate intensity type of um, exercise, aerobic exercise. Well, so to your point, Harun, you're going to have to look at, I guess, the different what population are you looking at, right? And oftentimes, yeah. I think we're looking at sedentary populations, but the yeah. um, the more advanced physically, you know, the the population of people that are, you know, like let's say uh, take a marathon runner, right? Every time you exercise, you have you have like this hormetic response, right? Where it's just like mm-hmm. your body goes through hormesis. It's like a stress inoculation, and then you become more resilient to that stress. So, yes. yeah. do some individuals like are some individuals able to handle better mm-hmm. a greater stress and that be more beneficial for them versus somebody who is new to exercise. Exactly. And how yeah. how fast or maybe fast is the wrong word. How um yeah, I guess fast is the timing in terms of progression as they get better. Like that that time under tension type stress. So if you get a beginner who's never walked or done any type of exercise, Mm -hmm. it could take them what, three months, six months, one year to get to a place where their body's stress response to activity becomes better and their cognitive function and all the benefits of exercise Mm -hmm. become stronger. Or you have a marathon runner that is used to like the runner's high and can push and and really can handle that stress. And they can make strides in six weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks, Mm -hmm. 12, you know? And so I think when we talk about it from a practical standpoint with clients, Mm -hmm. where are they coming in? What's their level of activity? What's their, you know, we talk about primary foods and stress in terms of the outside factors of life and how that all plays a role in what their, uh, level of fitness and, yeah. you know, stress response would affect the way their cardiovascular, we're specifically talking about cardiovascular and brain function works. Because I mean, just from a practical standpoint, as a trainer for 20 years, I can just tell you without even reading research that we see benefits from people doing exercise. I mean, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the thing that it is, uh, is w- with what you guys b- both just were mentioning, even with marathon runners, right? You look at marathon runners and their, uh, their, average heart rate, you know, and they're, they're, they're even just like their, their resting heart rate, their, their pulse. You look at these types of factors, compare that to someone that is sedentary or even not a marathon runners. And you're going to notice that their sort of resting heart rate is much lower compared to and just same with people that exercise regularly. It's much lower than someone that doesn't. So when you have that, your baseline compared to someone else is going to be different, thus resulting into a, a, a less of a, the person that has a higher resting heart rate, their capacity to reach that that sort of a max or moderate or uh, you know rigorous sort of intensity in terms of a uh, heart rate based off of heart rate max heart rate is going to be different than the person that has a lower one. They'd, they'd likely be more resistant. I tried to really find some more studies, comp- you know, about marathons and marathon runners in season, off season. Uh, you know, mm. the only consistent finding that I really found was with regards to just marathon runners compared to sedentary um, individuals, which, as we all would ex- expect, is their executive functionings were much much stronger uh, relative to those significantly stronger, I should say, uh, relative to those who live the sedentary lifestyle. But I mean, if, if someone, and this is new to me, I've never ran a marathon. My brother has ran marathon, which I was happy to see in New York, but I've never done it. So, you know, when someone is running marathon, they're off season, right? Are they still exercise? You guys might have the answer to this. Are they still running and preparing for the next marathon? Yeah, most likely. Well, yeah. Maybe not as much or intensely, right? You need to rest and recover. So then my Mm -hmm. question would be some of those effects, do they diminish? Do they diminish with the changes in on season versus off season? 
That would just go to, a, to what you were so saying about intensity, my, I, right? My question, like, yeah. for example, this, like, let's say I'm a marathon runner mm-hmm. for, I guess I'll put it like this. If I'm a marathon runner for 10 years, yeah, right? And then I just stop and then I don't do any cardio for the rest of my life. Do I have any continued benefit from the 10 years or will that start to diminish over that period of time? Yeah, that's a good, it hasn't, it, I'd be very surprised if there are actually studies that have, uh, that have looked at that just because of how, like, that's a long, that's it's a longitudinal long. study. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but I mean, if you think about it, what, when someone is doing that for a period, the whole, the whole piece of a uh, cognition and exercise, the, the mechanisms behind it are very vascularly rooted. Like it, it's the more vascular conditions one has, the, the worse vasculature they have in their, in their body, essentially in their cardiovascular system though it bodes worse for their cognitive functioning. Their, their risk of dementia increases significantly. Um, their risk for uh, just, just even just cognitive impairment, their, their, the rate of their age-related cognitive decline, some studies show that that also uh, accelerates too. Uh, so this is furthermore reason why even that marathon runner, right? If they are doing that and they're, they're doing this marathon training for 10 years or so and they stop, the thing is during that period that they stop, are they just stopping? The, the exercise piece, or are they also changing their dietary habits? That's going to furthermore increase their risk for vascular types of risk factors. Um, you know, and that's another piece with, with comparing the whole aerobic and anaerobic, or even just exercise versus non-exercise groups is the other lifestyle factors that studies show are more associated with that particular group. So are sedentary people going to be more likely to eat healthier compared to people that are exercising chronically? I would venture and say that they are not. Um, just from a lot of, you know, studies even show that. Well, we talked about memory, right? And memory gets stored when you're sleeping, right? So if your lack of sleep, right? So it, I almost kind of look at it like as if it's nutrition research and there are just Mm -hmm. so many variables that you have to account for. Like, did they sleep the night before? Like, what's their average night of sleep look like? What does their nutrition look like? And basically from what you're saying is there's a link between cardiovascular health and brain health is really kind of the moral of the story. Let me ask you this differences between weightlifting rigorously versus cardio. Yeah, this is a great, this is a great question. And, uh, you know, I, another area that I was actually interested when I was planning, trying to do my dissertation, uh, studies show that, uh, cause when we're looking at this, this sort of, uh, this particular area, we're, we're now sort of it would be best to kind of look also the acute effects of exercise because, you know, when you're, when you're looking at anaerobic from a long-term perspective versus aerobic, you know, people that do anaerobic exercise, what does that mean? And this is a big problem and limitation when it comes to exercise research and cognition is we are not as a field, we we are not defining things. Well, we're not defining what anaerobic means. Does that mean 60% of the time you're doing weightlifting training and you know, the other 40 you're doing cardio, like what does it mean specifically? So when we're, what studies have looked at is how anaerobic uh, bouts of exercise, someone that is doing resistance type training versus someone that is doing aerobic uh, types of training for a similar amount, using uh, different types of metrics for measuring their, you know, uh, the, the intensity. So sometimes, as I said, they use the, the heart rate max 220 minus the age to kind of get a broad estimate. Other times the gold standard is usually considered looking at the, the volume, the volumetric approach with the oxygen, the VO2 max and using that, but that often requires a lot more, um, in terms of, you know, materials and, uh, devices. So when we're looking at these different types of, uh, the, the, the different model, when it comes to acute bouts, 
research actually shows that aerobic exercise uh, is better, has shown to be significantly better compared to anaerobic uh, types of res resistance type of training in the moment uh, shortly thereafter. Now, does that mean that people that, that do predominantly resistance and anaerobic training from a chronic standpoint are uh, at, at, you know, are, are not going to have their attentional or executive functioning abilities? Absolutely not, because research shows exercise as a whole benefits sort of your, your cognitive re resources. But it, it was, I thought it was so interesting that the aerobic kind of really was better. And it kind of fits into this vascular kind of picture that I had brought up before, because that's what's really targeting it. Just like our, our arm, just like our heart, you know, our heart needs adequate and appropriate and healthy oxygenated blood flow. Our brain needs it, if not the same level, maybe even more than the heart, you know, because just like a lot of conditions that we have, you know, things like stroke, things like uh, sleep apnea, even uh, just things like even vascular dementia, all are related to one thing. And that's poor blood flow going into the brain, thus increasing your risk for cognitive dysfunction. Yeah. When we talk about steps per day, which we talk about a lot on the podcast with clients, that is everything you just described in a nutshell, what I tell clients. I'm like, movement creates blood flow, blood flow, better blood flow creates better function, better function creates better strength training, better thinking, better memory, better control of your emotions, everything. It's literally, you know, um, when I did um, cardiac rehab, they used to say that if you don't create proper blood flow, you sit in a pool or a tank of shit, like things get stagnant. Like you know what I mean? I might steal that. You mind if you I steal, steal that? that? That's really, that's, that's pretty good. Cause I that's like basically that. what happens. Things get yeah. stuck and you need to yeah. move things around. We talk about the, the lymphatic system a lot. When I talk about cardiovascular mm -hmm. swelling, I have a lot of like menopausal women who will get mm -hmm. like, what do you call it? Water retention or swelling in their legs. And I mean, walking is probably the number one thing that well, yeah. we, I, so we talk about like the lymphatic system from like you have your circular system and your lymphatic system and yeah. one of them has a pump to drain and exactly. push things through and the other one relies on movement. Right. So mm -hmm. you need to physically move in order to keep your lymph moving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Haroon, I have questions for you about the um, physical changes that potentially we can see in the brain. And then mm -hmm. also I wanted to then jump into like um, uh, BDNF and yeah. how that kind of ties in in terms of exercise. So do we have like brain scans that we can actually see changes? Yeah. So this is, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, oftentimes this is something that I, my patients, they, they say the same, they say the same things. It's like, I want to know if I have like, you know, an attention deficit and uh, can, I could just get a brain scan. It'll show me. So brain scans, things like CTs, uh, CT scans, MRIs, really kind of that that's considered the most sort of detail. And you get the whole the different structures, both that are on the surface and also the deeper sort of subcortical types of structures uh, and pathways. So with brain imaging, here's the good news about it is it does provide really good histological neuroanatomical, um, you know, estimates of the size of certain, you know, brain structures, cortical structures. So things like, uh, so the hippocampus, for example, that's like the learning memory center, right, of the brain. Uh, things like Alzheimer's disease really target the, the hippocampus. And uh, you could see atrophy so quickly when it comes to, um, when, when it, not quickly, but you can see changes in ad, the atrophy pattern with the hippocampus, with people that have Alzheimer's disease as it progresses. Uh, you know, other sort of movement disorders like Parkinson's, they have that those sort of, uh, his, those sort of anatomical uh, uh, indications too. So it's very useful in that way. And so a lot of these studies, especially with the exercise studies, uh, when it comes to older adults, 
imaging is often used. MRIs are often used to look at, all right, this is how they looked on this day. How did they look a year ago, a year later, or two years later? And so a lot of these studies, they do show changes. Now, the thing is, the biggest caveat here is with older adults, changes, sort of neuroanatomical changes in older adults are just more probable. All of us, we have gray matter and white matter. Uh, our gray matter, as we get older, we do have atrophy in our gray matter over time. It's usually pretty mild. That's just a part of aging. You know, there's, it's a normal aging process. So when someone's older, you're able to really identify these markers on brain imaging and really can really see from a functional standpoint, all right, their hippocampus looks like completely gone, meaning their memory is likely very gone. There's a couple of limitations to this though. A, I keep saying older adults, uh, and that's because this is not as effective for younger adults, middle adulthood, because brain sort of uh, the neuroanatomical structures, the brain itself uh, stays pretty constant at sort of a, a, a sort of a, a neuro from a neuroimaging perspective. That's number one. Uh, number two, from a neuroimaging perspective, you really don't get much information about functional implications really, or cognitive implications. I like to give the good example of um, a patient I actually had seen, uh, actually, his brain imaging uh, showed really moderate to severe hippocampal atrophy, which usually in people, uh, you can see, you, you will note immediately on memory tests, that storage, so like that, that file cabinet I'd mentioned, it's like there's a hole at the bottom of that file cabinet. What goes in just drops down. For this patient, though, that happened, but his, I, I did cognitive testing, right? And you could see in his cognitive testing that a lot of his uh, storage abilities and his memory itself, his language centers, which also get uh, sort of compromised and hijacked uh, part of the temporal lobe with uh, Alzheimer's disease, those pieces were all very well preserved and intact. This is where other factors come into play that imaging can't really account for, one of which is cognitive reserve and education. Uh, studies show people that have higher education and have sort of higher professional, uh, you know, higher levels of that and higher occupational demands, their uh, resistance to a neurodegenerative process uh, is is higher compared to someone that doesn't have that. And there, that means that sort of when it starts, when that neurodegenerative process starts, it's going to take the person with the higher academic and achievement, uh, occupational functioning, uh, longer than the person that doesn't have that. So that's, a, this person actually had a very high sort of, a sort of, a promorbid level of functioning, like the educational background, occupational background. So that's where imaging is really not as effective as well. So, you know, it has its purposes. Don't get me wrong for sure. But when we're looking at things like a sort of a, a functional standpoint and a cognitive standpoint, you know, the size of one particular type of structure doesn't really provide us too much. And that's where really a lot of the work that I do comes into play, really gives a better snapshot of those functional and cognitive, uh, that the status part of those. So what you're saying, kind you of need both for the big picture. Yeah. In an ideal world, in an ideal world where, you know, insurance companies aren't, you know, right. haggling you and saying, yeah, you know, you, it would be great. It would be absolutely awesome. And uh, the, it would be best to have that. Quite frankly, most young adults, uh, if all of us took a brain scan right now, chances are they'd look, they'd probably look very similar. And then it would probably stay pretty constant until we get into sort of adulthood where sort of there are some more changes that are more expected age related. What's the age? What's the age? Is there or is there an age range where you start to see the change you say that you know if we all did it now it would be similar and as we yeah. age it would slowly start to change is there a specific age where like yeah so i that's a good question I, I don't really have a set specific answer but what i i'll say it'll it's going to be typically about late adulthood into uh, older adulthood because you see patterns of uh 
you know, on an MRI, you see sort of the, the gray matter and the white matter. You actually, that's exactly what you see them in that color. Like the gray matter you'll see on the sort of cortical side, the cortical um, representations of the, uh, the image. And so as someone gets older, especially during that time frame, the imaging techniques really show that there, it slowly does shrink until a certain amount of certain time uh, that's expected to be normal, right? It's not considered uh, on a lot of imaging findings. You'll see like mild um, uh, cortical atrophy that's uh, uh, relative acceptable to age, so to speak. Usually it's around that 60, 60 ish, 60 to five, 60 to 60 to 65 time frame, give or take. Mm -hmm. So I, what you're talking about too, with the kind of changes that we see with age and then people who essentially it's like your brain is like a muscle. And if you use it more, it's going to be stronger and more resilient later on in life. But that also reminds me of how, when you retire, it's important to yes. continue to do things that you're where you're using your brain because cognitive decline will, I guess, increase if you just retire and sit at home and do nothing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's where also think about retirement, right? Uh, you know, you are essentially for those people that are go getters that have been working their whole life. Uh, you're now retiring. You are now spending time at home doing something like literally just an entire shift, right? You're just going from full time to just no time potentially. Uh, this is where, from a cognitive standpoint, there's a couple different factors. Uh, what are you spending your time doing? Are you, are you sedentary now, or are you actually engaging in, you know, cognitively stimulating activities and physically stimulating activities? Um, you know, what is, uh, how does that impact your mood? Are you predisposed or do you, are you sort of at a higher risk for things like depression or, you know, anxiety, or have you had a history of that? Cause studies show that also is another risk factor, um, for, things like a, you know, cognitive impairment that's more so than normal aging down the road. Uh, so, so these are different. And sometimes I have patients that come in that are, uh, you know, 60, 65, that is exactly what you just mentioned, Daron. They just retired uh, and they're just noticing their memory is just essentially shot in a lot of ways. They can't, you know, learn things as easily. They can't, you know, recall as much as they could have before. But if you think about it, as humans, we're all habits of routine. Yeah. So once we're taken out of that, you know, remember you, you ask me to do something that's not in my routine. I, I, I only remember this today because it was, I put it in my routine. Uh, it was in my calendar. I made sure it was that way. So, you know, I, th that's a big piece too, that also impacts things. And I have a lot of work. It's a lot of worry. Well, types of individuals that I see in that regard that kind of are concerned and rightfully so it's a big change from, you know, being constantly doing something and cognitively engaged, uh, in your day to day. Let me ask you this. And I think a neuropsychologist is probably the best person to ask this question. And this just <laughs> pops up in my head. So brain training apps, are they any oh, good? Man. Are they any good? Or are they just all no. crap? Like what, where, where is that? So there are, uh, there's two things on my, on my list of things I want to make sure that I inform everybody here that I think that they should not do. Um, one of which is what you just said. Uh, those, those now here, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about like a Lumosity? Or are we talking about like crossword puzzles? Apps like physical, like Lumosity. Yeah. So yeah, no, I mean, this is the problem is, uh, and this is, this is my, my personal, my professional opinion. And it's also backed up a lot by research. These sort of, uh, these things that, that are being done like Lumosity, right? These subscriptions, uh, the other, the second thing that I wanted to talk about was the, uh, the cognitive enhancing pills that people try to sell, uh, you know, also, another thing that I, I, I really suggest people to steer clear, not because they're going to do anything detrimental to anybody, but the reality is what we have is we already have the exact medicine and supplement that you need to improve your cognitive functioning. 
and that's exercise. So, you know, yes. granted, granted, you know, these things from a placebo effect, hundred percent, it could absolutely have that, that effect. And I, I get that. I think that, that's great, but let's really, let's not put a bandaid on the wound. Let's try to get to the, to, to the, the nitty gritty and what's, what's happening at the source of things. And a lot of times from what I've noticed anecdotally is people that are more resistant to the, uh, the, 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 the more intensive types of regimens they need to keep themselves healthy and their lifestyle. Um, you know, that's where those things I would steer clear of. However, I do think it is very important to stay cognitively and intellectually engaged things like crosswords, things like Sudoku. I think yeah. those are great. I just don't think that make it's, it's from a financial perspective. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, there's no research to back up. Those things are effective. I, I mean, they say oftentimes that they're empirically scientifically, but you know, come on. I mean, listen, listen, <laughs> it's I'm, good used marketing. To, I'm used <laughs> yeah. to the supplement industry where it's like clinically proven in our lab with three people and some doctors that we paid. Right. So yeah. it's I get what you're saying from that standpoint. I think I want to kind of go into some uh, practical steps for people yeah. in terms mm -hmm. of day to day. And so what we're looking at in terms of frequency, mm -hmm. what we're looking at in terms of intensity, like we talked about heart rate. So what's the optimal mm -hmm. heart rate? And I, I guess like how, how to keep your brain healthy as you age. Mm -hmm. Right. And so from a, I just have to, as a disclosure, say this as a healthcare professional, ultimately anyone should be deferring to their, you know, if you're older and you have these risk factors, the vascular risk factors, and you have, you know, conditions that affect your heart, obviously defer to your, your primary care doctor, or your general practitioner before that. Um, but for anyone that's really, that, that is a relatively from a, health, a healthy, healthy health standpoint is not, you know, having those risk factors, those kinds of things. You know, I do think really let's take a step back. I know that we all know, right? We all know the long-term benefits of exercise. Everyone does. And still America has like the highest rate of sedentary lifestyles ever. So clearly that's not working. So I'm all about thinking about more of a sort of a short-term, we all like the quick fix. We all want it. Uh, whether it's things about anxiety, depression, uh, attention, whatever it is, quick fixes is what make, what, what people give into. Um, so the buy-in that I say is really just get out there in terms of just getting some level of moderately intense. What I mean by that is even starting at a conversation pace of, of aerobic exercise on a treadmill, uh, getting into that, even for from what, like my research and what a lot of the research says, even like 15, 20 minutes and see how you feel after doing that. And if you like it, you should keep doing it. If, you, if, you, if it's not helping and it's actually making things worse, which I just haven't, uh, I haven't heard. I don't know if you guys have heard, but if, if that's something that's happening, then of course, you, you know, that's your data that you have and keep that. But from a frequency standpoint, honestly, I would say doing that more often than not doing that more often in a week than not aiming for, you know, five, five to even seven days. If you're doing it less intensively then doing it for the short-term effects of attention, cognition, mood, then that's see how you feel with that. If it's an effective treatment, treat it like medicine. Um, you know, that's not to say go, you know, deadlift. 225 every single day, or, you know, that's probably not the best. I'm sure you guys are, well, you know, you guys do this stuff. I mean, but from a general broad standpoint, I do say medic, treat it like medication. Uh, it's going to give you short-term effects. That's what the data shows. It's real science. That's what it says. And then I think that that's going to really help people realize, you know, the longevity of it and how beneficial it is from a long-term perspective. So that's one thing. Um, otherwise I do think 
from from people that are big into resistance training and strength training, that's I think that's great. And I I hope that this conversation didn't deter people from doing that at all. I think that absolutely should still be done. Um, also, because if you're having goals for, uh, you know, cardio, like if you're trying to reach a half marathon or a marathon standpoint, oftentimes some level of resistance training is very helpful with that. Uh, so, you know, including that, but also don't, don't shy away from the aerobic aspect of things. I know people hate running. I get it. I used to hate running too. I used to do cross country when I was in high school and I despised it. I would stop at my home whenever I would run just to hang out and play video games for a little bit because I really didn't like it. But now I actually really like it. And it's for these specific reasons. It's because it's just makes me feel better. Um, so I would recommend including that even a one to two days. If you're entirely sedentary, I really think just, just starting out with sort of a 15 minute bout every, every, every other day, if you are feeling ambitious every day and there's nothing holding you back, go for it. It doesn't have to be a whole hour long thing or two hour thing. Um, I think some people do get a little bogged down by like, well, I have all these other things to do. You know, I, I got to work. I got to, maybe I'm in school too. You want me to sleep and exercise? How am I supposed to do that? That's how I was in graduate school, to be quite honest. Um, but definitely that. Uh, and also recognize, you know, we're talking a lot about exercise and cognition, but from a, from a practical perspective uh, in terms of mood, right? Whether it's going through a little funk, whether it's being very stressed out or overwhelmed by what work's doing, whether you're feeling burned out because of the pandemic or work and the pandemic or all the above or parenting, consider the fact that also acute bouts of aerobic exercise show to benefit one's mood too. Uh, that's also very scientifically uh, supported, validated. So, you know, treat it like medicine like that, it's just like an antidepressant, just like, a, you know, a anxiety medication, you know, it's treated in that same context. And I think that's where the buy-in for the short term and also the long term is going to increase over time just because they see the effect, they see the incentive immediately. Well, Haroon, to, to your point, I've seen studies on step count and yeah. just increasing your steps by 2000, which is not, that's less than a mile. Increasing your steps by 2000 from an insulin sensitivity standpoint drastically decreases your risk yeah. for type 2 diabetes and decreases your risk for becoming insulin resistant. And, and also to your point, you know, of not shying away from doing resistance training. I mean, we do different things for different reasons, right? So yeah. for myself, I look at it and I look at my routine. When I get away from cardio, I feel like my brain doesn't function as well. I always resistance train. I come from a bodybuilding background. Everybody that knows me knows that. And I never did cardio in the past. And I now incorporate it because I see the benefit in a different area. But it's not to downplay resistance training, because if I look at it, I'll go from a female standpoint, a risk of osteoporosis, resistance training versus mm. cardio. You're going to get a yeah. greater benefit from resistance training than you are for cardio in that area that you're looking to improve or yeah. potentially uh, mitigate some of the risk factors. Right. So, you know, coupling the two together and just like you were saying, to your point, doing a 10 minute walk is actually shown to have dramatic impact on your metabolism, your brain, your hormones, like everything mm -hmm. that's going on in your body. So you, and like I always say, I guess the most practical recommendation is, start meet yourself where you are mm -hmm. and then and then go from there and build up over a period of time one of the things that i use in my practice with clients is what i call a empowerment tasks and we do like mood journals so i'll have a client that's starting out it doesn't matter what they do for exercise they could be playing tennis they could be boxing they could be walking they could be lifting doesn't matter and i'll have them journal 
the empowerment of what they feel before they go, which is usually I hate you, Nicole, and I don't want to exercise <laughs> and this sucks right. and you suck yeah. and I should be doing laundry. And I, you know, yeah. they list all the things that they feel. Then they go do the workout 15 minutes to an hour, whatever the time is. And then they come back and then I have them journal how they feel after. I feel so much clearer. My brain feels better. I did 20 more minutes of work that day. I, I made dinner faster. I was Nicole, eating. you're the best. They add that too in there <laughs> yeah, afterwards, right? I, I yeah. don't hate you anymore. <laughs> um, so just from a practical standpoint, I think it's empowering. That's why we call them empowerment tasks to have clients physically, if they do that for 30 days mm -hmm. over from the first you know, Nicole, I hate you and all the, the negative stuff. Even after two weeks of doing that, the beginning before they go do it, those negative thoughts start to change. And it yeah. starts to become like, I actually feel like I'm excited to do this today. I know it's going to make me feel better after. So from just a task for clients, if you're someone that's just getting started yeah. and you just write down how you feel, changing your state of mind when you exercise before and after is one of the simplest ways to continue to empower yourself to want to keep doing it and creating that habit. Yeah. What you just said was you nailed you. You nailed it. That's exactly what, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I see this too. I, I see people that, that sort of even just getting discouraged. I think people forget that we're all human, that if you're yeah. setting out to do something for 30 days or whatever your regimen is, and let's say one day you like, whether you, you forget or you got busy with other things, something came up, you know, there's a million things that are happening. Uh, and so I think that needs to be said too. Like just because someone drops out of routine, if, if you are someone that drops out of your routine or your habit, that does not mean that you are a failure. That means that you are human. It takes time for people to sort of create a habit and create a routine and stick to it. It's, it's not, not many people, if any at all, can really do it immediately. So definitely um, just echoing what you said, that, that's, that's spot on. Yeah. And even the most successful people in that, they, they fall, I fall off track too, all the time. Yeah. I think just from a, a benefit standpoint, to see that mm -hmm. your brain changes and how you even think of exercise mm -hmm. and approach it is one of the easiest ways to continue to do it. Or at least that's what right. I found with my clients. I'm like, okay, you don't yeah. hate it as much anymore. You don't even hate eating vegetables as much because now you're feeling better that you're eating vegetables. So yeah. you're more determined to keep that in your routine. Right. This is a furthermore, just trying to increase the, the buy-in, right? A lot of people want to know what they're doing, like why it's effective. Is it really effective? So, you know, BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, um, we all have it. It's all, we have it expressed uh, and it changes in different ways in our brain, right? So the expression of it varies through age. Um, it's expressed in different areas too of the brain. Uh, so things like the hippocampus, learning and memory, things like the amygdala, which is really uh, in, within the context of emotions, mood types of concerns. So what a lot of research, and this really is one of the underpinnings of exercise and how it relates to cognitive functioning, um, is how BDNF expression has been shown to correlate significantly um, inversely with uh, sort of the, the activity that's happened with people that have Alzheimer's disease. So they take patients that have Alzheimer's disease and measure the BDNF that's in their serum, in their blood, and they see the expression of the BDNF in those individuals is significantly lower, particularly in that area, the hippocampus learning memory area, than people that don't have dementia or don't have cognitive impairment. So why am I bringing this up? Because also things like depression, people that have depression, their BDNF expression in their amygdala and in their sort of a, the cortical areas of the brain is lower compared to non-depressed people. And actually 
increases, the BNF expression increases with antidepressant treatment. So here we have cognitive functioning, mood related to BDNF. Exercise, a lot of research has been coming out recently showing that BDNF expression in the serum taken post uh, people that work at exercise, uh, aerobic or anaerobic is higher than people that do not uh, exercise or have more sedentary lifestyle. So here we have exercise, this dynamic tool that has been related to cognition, mood, and then we also have BDNF. That's also related in a very similar fashion to cognition and mood and older adult types of dementia. So it really further, there's more research that's really going into it, but it is such a, an, a, a huge underpinning. I really, I'm going to bring this, talk about this book again, Spark by John Rady, uh, Dr. John Rady, very good book because it talks a lot about that. And also what I think a lot of your audience wants, which is like, a, you know, how do I make myself being the best health and wellness mindset that I'm going to be able to, you know, increase the longevity of my life and have it in a very healthy way where I'm thinking straight and feeling good about myself. And that's where a lot of this, uh, this, this BDNF expression piece is really providing some of that etiology as to why this benefit comes from exercise. That's essentially increasing neurogenesis. Yes. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's very responsible for within the, the neurons and, uh, particularly within the cortical areas that really, uh, receive a lot of these signals, uh, from the sort of, uh, the, the, the white matter really sends the signals to the gray, the gray matter. Uh, and that's where the expression usually lies in the gray matter of the BDNF. That's, that's what really drew me immediately into this topic. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, it's such a big mechanism that's being proposed. Of course, the still underpinnings as to how exercise really modulates that expression is still being worked on. Um, but definitely something that's going to, you're going to be hearing a lot more of in the coming years when it comes to this topic. Cool. Very cool. Arun, man, I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us about this. I think this is super valuable to our audience. And I do see a trend in our industry and the fitness mm -hmm. industry and the health and the wellness industry uh, in terms of brain function. I know a lot of people are concerned with Alzheimer's and dementia. They're, they're two huge areas where, you know, we're still researching and learning a lot in these areas. And I think this is, is helpful. And I do think that, you know, exercising throughout your life and especially doing cardiovascular exercise, as I've seen it on myself anecdotally, um, this is why I wanted to kind of tie in this episode with you, because I do think that it's a very important topic to share. So I really Absolutely. appreciate you coming yeah. on and talking to us about that. Yeah, hundred percent. Really appreciate being on. Um, you know, if you guys have any other any other interests in this topic, this area, this subject, neuropsychology, psychology, I'll be happy to come back on. Just let me know. Um, it's been a pleasure for sure. You know, I'm curious about the effects of uh, psilocybin on brain function and <laughs> neurogenesis, but we'll save that for another day. That's the the research is actually uh, up and coming with that. I mean, we might not be able to. We can't experiment, I'm sure, on the podcast, but uh, we no, definitely, definitely not. not. <laughs> yeah. But I will say, I mean, John Hop Johns Hopkins just got a uh, federal grant, grant. to study, yeah. and that's huge because that's yeah. like a leap forward in research that we haven't been able to do for a very long yeah. time. So I just think it's really cool, and yeah. it's a cool topic. My uh, my fellowship, I did my fellowship at McLean Hospital, uh, Harvard Medical School affiliated, and they. Uh, they actually just got, they're working on getting approval or they're in the preliminary phases of the psilocybin uh, trial and looking at how that affects, uh, I think, I believe it's trauma and something along those lines related to mood and uh, emotional functioning. So definitely up and coming for sure. Yeah, they're doing, I know they're doing like smoking cessation. They're doing end of yes. life. They're doing like end of life stage with like higher doses. Yeah. Uh, and they have somebody monitoring them kind of like to, accepting going to the other side. 
Uh, right. And then they're also doing uh, PTSD, which is a huge yeah. area as well. That's a huge area. Yeah. Yeah. Same with like LSD. I think they did some studies for that's being worked on too in some areas, LSD. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of new stuff coming out, which is pretty cool, but we'll save that for another day. Haroon, yeah. I appreciate you coming on. And if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, share this with a friend, write a review, and you'll hear us next week. 